0: Good morning. The Word of God for our sermon text today is 2 Samuel 11 and 12 selected verses. It's on page 9 in the service folder. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now he was purifying himself from her her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in the front, where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. This is God's word. Well, what are we going to do with that? We have a couple options. Number one, we could do an eight-week sermon series on what we just read, giving each pastor 20 minutes to give his shot at it twice. Number two, uh, I could throw it out to the Sunday morning Bible class, 9.30, but I know if I do that, we're going to be talking about it for the next eight months, and you're probably only going to get through five verses. Number three, you could give me the next three hours, and I'll try to dissect every little piece in here. Number four, We can have three takeaways from the text that you just heard. In fact, I was walking out uh, going to Pflugerville and somebody ran up to me in the parking lot. Pastor, 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 you said this and I have all these notes, but did you think of that too? (laughs) There will be many things in this text that are going to come out to you. And it's a really familiar story. Probably if you've been in the church your whole life, you've heard this preached on um, a dozen times or more. But today, come with me. I have lunch, and I have a date with my son at a movie this afternoon, so I won't go three hours. But here we go. Number one, the takeaway is this. Sin is always personal, and it's always destructive. Two, a good friend cares about your life. And three, your best friend gave you his life, okay? That's the path that we're going to go down. Sin is personal and destructive, always, A good friend cares about your life, and your best friend gave you his life always. First one, sin is personal and destructive. Take a look at the life of David overall first. We have one little slice of his life right here. David is the one who is called in the Bible a man after what? God's own heart, right? So he's leading the men's group at church. This is the guy, David, that we're talking about. He's elected to president. He's the one that is overseeing the spiritual and the physical welfare of this nation, and he's a man after God's own heart. This is the David that we're talking about. Yes? Nod your head. This is the David we're talking about. This is the David we're talking about who penned these words. Psalm 40, verse 8. Let's read them together on the screen. Ready? I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. Are we talking about the same David? Yes, we're talking about the same David, the same David who is walking on his roof in the middle of the night and he looks and he sees a woman bathing and he doesn't take his eyes away but he keeps looking and in fact he brings curiosity into his heart about who this is. It's a beautiful woman and he asks who this woman is to a servant, the servant brings her to him, Bathsheba is her name, Uriah is her husband and he sleeps with her, has an affair, he commits adultery with her with a married man's wife, he himself being married. I desire to know your will, my God. Your law is always within my heart, a man after God's own heart. This is the one that when he found out that she's pregnant, schemed, deceived, Uriah calling him back from the battle into his palace, tried to get him drunk, tried to get him to go back to his wife so that He would sleep with her within a week. Why? Then it would cover everything up. Nine months later, he says, Well, yeah, I slept with her that one time, so obviously I'm the father. And David gets away clean. Well, what happens is that Uriah is way too honest and way too committed to his men out in battle. And instead of sleeping with his wife, he says, My men are at battle right now. I can't do this. I will sleep outside like they're sleeping outside. And he didn't go home to his wife. When David saw that that happened, what did David do? David did something really ugly and disgusting he wrote a death sentence that you heard to put him on the front lines of battle. He wrote and he told Joab, put him on the front lines of battle. Um, I don't want everybody getting killed, but put him there and then when they attack, pull back from him really fast so that he gets struck down. And what's even grosser about that is that when he penned that, he sealed it with his seal that was only meant for Joab and he put it into Uriah's pocket. And Uriah carried that to Joab. How sick is this? I desire to do your will, my God. And when he gets there, sure enough, he's struck down. But not just he, all of his troop. It says other men were struck down too as a result of this cover-up. How can we have this story for Second Samuel 11 and 12 in the Bible? It stands in direct conflict with what we know about David. Well, there's two reasons. Two reasons we have this story, and we're going to get them Right here, number one, the Bible is embarrassingly honest. And that's a unique thing about the Bible. Did you know that kings back in the time when David lived would pen their own chronicles, their own history? Do you think that kings back then told the truth, nothing but the truth, so help them God about their lives? No. We're so surprised about fake news today. Fake news? That's what their whole biography was, was fake news. They wrote anything they wanted to about themselves, and people just had to take it. But here we have a book, and literary scholars call it verisimilitude. The very fact that these embarrassing stories, Abraham, who had a chronic problem with lying to world leaders to cover up his uh, relationship with his wife, um, Moses, who himself was a murderer, that's in the scriptures, um, uh, in the scriptures about Moses who, who, who committed this capital crime and then who led God's people and was supposed to lead him into the promised land, but he himself broke God's law in front of everybody and he didn't even get to the promised land. Why is that story in there? Why is the story of Peter, the leader of the New Testament church in the Bible? Uh, he was the one that, that dropped the ball when, the, when it was the most urgent time to be at Jesus' side and now he's trusted with the Bible is painfully true. That's why we have stories like this. But that's not the only reason that we have stories like this. The second reason we have this story in particular is because it actually talks about the heart and the core of everyone, from pulpit to pew, from king to person on death row. Jesus says this, As good as you think you are, each and every one of us has a seed a seed within us called sin. You can call it the sin nature. You can call it a spiritual gene that each one of us has that given the right light, given the right elements, given water and soil can grow up into something very ugly. And as soon as you think that that seed is not within you, the sinful nature, you actually are in deep, deep trouble (laughs) if you don't recognize that. Jesus says this. Let's read it together. For out of the heart... Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. It's out of that seed in the heart. I picked up this morning as I walked outside on my driveway. One of these. Do you have these on your driveway, Larry? you in nodding your head. God's mercies, the Bible said, are new every morning, and so are His acorns. They litter my lawn and I rake them up and they fall down again and again and again they're all over the place even the chipmunks and the squirrels are tired of picking them up maybe on your lawn too what's the potential of this though trees big trees and what do trees produce more acorns right and if we didn't Crush the acorns, the acorns could take over the world and trees would cover the earth. And so we do battle against acorns lawn by lawn by lawn because they have the potential to be big and to grow big. Did you see that happen in the text this morning? It happened so small and we we should not be surprised that somebody as, as good as David would have the ability to commit such a gross crime. At the beginning of World War II, FDR and the other world leaders, they blushed at the thought that Germany would be undertaking a holocaust. Do you know why? They said, no, that's not possible. Extermination of the Jews? No, way. Germany is way too advanced. Their technology is too good. They're too smart of a people. They wouldn't do something uncivil like that. But then the truth came out, and that's just one example I'm telling you, that the seeds of destruction and theft and adultery and sexual immorality, all of that start in the heart David, he broke half the Ten Commandments right there. What and how is sin personal and destructive? Sin is personal and destructive because we make lies and we believe those lies in our heart. I know that we give a hard time to our civil servants sometimes. And, uh, and whether it's on the city level, the state level, the federal level, whatever, all these people... They don't go into, and like David, who is himself a civil leader in this time and place in history, they don't go into um, the public service saying this, I want to go into the public service because I want a bunch of power so that I can sleep with whoever I want. They don't go into public service thinking that. They don't go into public service thinking, I want to grab hold of power so that I can get bribes. But do you know what the headlines finally are about people that have been in the service for a long time? Scandal, adultery, bribes, all this stuff. Where does that all start? It starts right here. Generally, people go into the public service because they want to help other people. They want to make it right. But here's the other thing about being in the public service. It's a very thankless job. You might have just a couple people that agree with you. But you have a whole bunch of people that are criticizing you your whole life. And you go through this life of, of thanklessness and maybe you don't even make a whole lot of money in this service. And so when the opportunity comes along, and I'm not justifying it. I'm telling you this is the way the thought process goes in believing the lie. When the, when the bribe comes to you, you think to yourself, I haven't gotten a raise ever. I really have this coming, don't I? I know it's not right, but I'm not going to get this any other way and God would want me to be happy. Bribe, boom, headline, You know what? At the top, it's really lonely. Not many people open up to me. Not many people are my friend. And I have this power. And so, call her in. I want to have have a connection with a real human being. Boom. Affair. Sin is personal and sin is destructive. It's personal because it ruins friendships. Do you know who Uriah the Hittite was? Uriah the Hittite, well, let's go to this. Do you remember when David was running around in the wilderness and his life was under attack? Who was the first king that, had his, that was attacking David all the time? Do you remember his name? King Saul, yeah. He was growing jealous of David, and so he was chasing him around all over the place, and David had a, a band of people, a band of men, called David's Mighty Men, who defended him and put their neck out on the line to protect David as he ran from Saul. Do you know, do you know who was part of that? That band? Uriah. What a friend, David. Friends and sins, I should say, we think of in vacuums. This isn't going to hurt anybody, but it actually affects those deepest relationships between us. And it starts right here. I cringe when I see caskets coming off of a plane with a flag draped over them, Right? My heart swells with pride for the lives of that service person, service woman, service man that gave their life for me to fight and defend our country. But imagine this, Uriah's casket coming back to Jerusalem. But not just his, all of those other people that lost their lives that we heard about because of a cover-up. They lost their daddy that day. Not because of a just war, though. It was because of a cover-up and a political pawn used. Sin is personal and destructive, but here's the other thing. It's not just because it wrecks relationships between you and me. It wrecks a relationship between me and God. People say, well, the Ten Commandments. Really? Do this? Don't do that? All these rules in the Bible? Is God? I mean, that's an ancient law code, right? It doesn't really apply to us today because we live in a different world in a different time but did you know that God actually makes those commandments do this and don't do that because he does want you to be happy because he doesn't want you to ruin a relationship between a husband and a wife over there because he knows that would be best for them if you didn't lust or you didn't commit adultery because he knows that it would be best for you That you wouldn't enter sin or let sin grow into your life in such a way that that all of a sudden you're living a double life like David was living. That's not any way to be happy, is it? But that's where David went with it. It's a personal breaking of the relationship of the God that says, I wanted you to be happy when I made you, but you haven't made it easy on yourself. You've done everything to destroy This relationship between me and you and my friends, if that's the way, living a double life like David was living, if that goes into eternity, there's no God there for you or for me. And that's scary and that's destructive forever. So what do we do? Point number one, sin is personal. Sin is destructive. There once was a quote from John Owen. He's a a church leader in the 17th century. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. What is he saying there? He's saying, when you notice that sin within you, that seed, when you know that, that it's there, take that thing, take that acorn and crush it. Leave it just like that. Don't give it a chance to grow. So, men, in this world where everything is sexualized and, you, and, there's, and we have screens in front of us and we have access to any number of, 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 um, of sexual things to look at, like on the Internet... What is it that triggers you visually? Crush it. Is it the time of day? David was on his roof in the middle of the night. Is it the content that you allow your eyes to see? Is it putting yourself into a situation where you know that you're going to fall back into that sin? Crush it. Women. Is it an emotional attachment, that you, an unhealthy emotional attachment to somebody other than your committed boyfriend or girlfriend or your spouse that you know is leading you astray? And have you thought about this too? What you wear and what you don't wear. Is that leading other people to sin or not to sin in their mind? I'm not up here giving laws about what you wear or what not to wear, but if we're all in this together to crush sin, we can work together. We're going to get into that in the second point, and that's this. A good friend cares about your life. Now, I don't, know if, I don't know if Nathan was invited to David's Super Bowl party or if they cracked beers together and they were best buddies, but what Nathan says to David is what a good friend says to another friend. It's not easy to say, but you know that he cares about him. He comes to David, and David is a king, yes, but he's also a judge. You've got to recognize this. Back then, they didn't have the division of power like we have in the United States where we have a Supreme Court that strikes down an edict by the president or something like that. No, David made the rules and then he was also the rule keeper. He was the judge. He was the Supreme Court. And so many times, like his famous son Solomon would have, David would have people come to him, litigate a case, tell him this is the evidence, this is the witness, what is your judgment? What is your um, judgment? Nathan comes to David in what seems like a judge-type situation. He says, "Um, David, I have a case for you. And David says, okay, let me hear your case. Nathan says, there's two people. One is a rich man. The rich man has a ton of cattle, has a ton of sheep, very well off. And then there's another man, his neighbor, who is very poor, and all he has is a little lamb, a little lamb that he bought. And it cost a lot of money for that man to buy this lamb. That lamb was precious to him. As you heard in the text, he was like, well, how many people out there are animal people? Who has dogs out there? Who has cats out there? Who out there, let's see how many hands stay up. Who out there would say that they're part of your family? Oh, Don's hand went a little bit higher. (laughs) You heard it in the text too. You can put your hands down. He says it was like a baby, like a daughter to this guy. Nathan said, now this is what happened. A traveler came to the rich man, and in Oriental society, hospitality and taking a stranger into your home was a value. You not just took him into your home, you also would put food out on the table. Uh, the stranger comes to the rich man, and the rich man decides, no, I'm not going to go to my sheep, even though I have tons of them. I'm going to go next door. And he goes into this man's house, takes baby lamb into his arms, takes the baby to his house, slaughters it, and puts it on the table. What does David say? He couldn't help it. He had to speak up. David, he's boiling over with anger to think about this travesty that's happening, that this rich man took this poor, this this almost child from this other home, this lamb, and slaughtered it just for a meal for a stranger. What does David say? This man must pay back four times for what he stole. And that was true. The Mosaic Law said you need to pay back four times for an animal or for a piece of property that is stolen. That person will, that's the penalty, four times back. But then did you hear what he said? He said that man must die. Whoa. You know, there's a, a commentary that I heard this week that really, you know, like I said, we could go into a lot of different conversations about this, but this kind of added to it the story for me um, It's by Robert Alter. He's an expert in Old Testament narrative at Berkeley, and he says this, um, Nathan may be counting on the adverse side of a guilty conscience, namely the anxious desire to do the right thing. Did you get that? What he's saying is this, when we have a guilty conscience in this area in our life, right, like we committed the crimes that David committed, all of a sudden we become uber-judgmental about other people. I know that's strange to think about, but the very things that we did become very aware in our life about the other people that do them, and we point it out so quickly. Sheep stealing. The horror. Off with his head. (laughs) And then Nathan, in the shortest sermon application in world history, says what? You, are the man I don't know if you have a good friend that can say that to you but find one they may save your life Nathan didn't come in to the judge's room with guns blazing saying I know what you did and you deserve to die and blah 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 what did he come in with he wasn't just valiant for truth he was valiant for David's heart And until you can see that, you won't get it. So guilt has two sides of it, and Nathan is a helpful friend. Number one, it's a liability against the things that we do, a liability or punishment as a result of sin. Um, As an example of this, you you can commit a crime and not know that you committed a crime, right? So if I'm driving to Grow Conference this Wednesday night, and I'm going down 290 into Houston, having a great time, talking with friends, cruising along, cruising along, and, uh, and I don't know the speed limit, and I didn't know that it was a construction zone. That doesn't make me innocent, does it? I could have gone through that whole construction zone, speeding through. But this is the important thing. This is what a good friend does for you. Number two, it's the feeling or awareness of that liability. Officer Jones is my best friend. I'm praying for him this week because he is so gracious. But it wasn't until the blue lights showed up in my rear view mirror and, and the whole church group said, Pastor Dan! <laughs> That's, you, you've been there. That's where the sinking feeling comes in. It's not just that you broke the law, but it's actually your friend, Officer Jones, pulling you over and saying it was a construction zone and you were going way over the speed limit. And it was then and only then When a good friend can come to you and say, you put not only those people in the van in danger of their lives, but you put construction workers in danger of their lives as well. Sin is personal. Sin is destructive. The point for number two is this. Find a good friend and be a good friend. Jesus has the same attitude. I know John 3.16 gets all the press, but John 17 says this. Let's read it together. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It says in John chapter 1, Jesus came full of grace, but he came full of truth. He desires to get to your heart and show you how destructive sin is between you and God and between you and your neighbor. But not just to condemn. There will be a day when he comes again, and he comes as a judge. But he's given us a time of grace right now. And he comes to us like a Nathan. And he's given you people in your life, whether it be your pastor or whether it be your connect group or whether it be that friend, that trusted friend that comes to you again and again and again and says you are that person in truth and love. And so can I ask you, have you, have you thought about being a Nathan in somebody's life? Have you thought about allowing somebody to be a Nathan in your life? We're going to find the power of that in just a moment of why we can do that but it's important for us to think about because that friend could save your life and save you from destruction. Everyone needs a Nathan. Everyone needs to be a Nathan. Okay, point number three. Your best friend gave his life for you. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. The judge, David, actually said he needs to die. You, David, are he. Now, how can Nathan, in one sweeping statement, just say, your sins are forgiven. You broke half the Ten Commandments and took the life of all these people. You're a homebreaker. And in one sentence, your sins are all forgiven. Because David knows his God and and, and he knows what God is all about. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. You know from our catechism that repentance has two parts, right? Number one, that we feel guilty about sin, that sinking feeling, the lights in the rearview mirror. But not just that. David knows, and you read this in the Psalms, and you can read it in Psalm 51. That should be your follow-up this week to this sermon. He knows that God can wipe the slate clean. He is the only one that has the capital, to pay for all of the wrong things that David has done. And David could try to rebuild the nation of Israel. He could shower gifts down on Bathsheba and do a huge lawsuit, but that wouldn't cover it up. Nothing would cover it up. He could work his whole life to try to cover it up, but nothing would. But he knew, and this is the second part to repentance, true repentance believes that God has done it all. Where did he do it all? He did it a 1,000 years later. Same city, different court. A man was brought to a different judge named Pontius Pilate from a crowd that accused him of many things. They couldn't get their stories straight, but they did know that he claimed to be God. And they accused him of that, of blasphemy. And he was put on trial, and Pontius Pilate cross-examined the, uh, the defendant, and he found nothing to be wrong with him. In fact, Pontius Pilate a heathen, a man that didn't care too much about the Jewish people. And this man, he washed his hands in front of all of the Jewish people and he said, I find nothing wrong with this guy. But if he would have done his research even more, he would have found out this about the man that was on trial. He would have learned that this man was, not, was, was the opposite of a homebreaker, but he was one that would confront adulterous women. And he would tell them that their sins are forgiven and go and sin no more. He would give them life again and hope About the kingdom of God. He was the one that brought to life the son of a widow so that that son could take care of that woman again. He was the one that brought to life a friend so that that friend could take care of his sisters again. This guy oozed life. He oozed forgiveness. He oozed righteousness. And every time that he was presented with a scene or he, was, he, he went through what David went through uh, on the roof at nighttime, he, he shaded his eyes and he turned away and he crushed sin every time he came across it. That was obvious to everybody. And here Pilate stands up there, this judge, with an innocent man in the court. Not David, who is a guilty man in court, but this judge stands up there, and what does he say? In eerily similar words to, you are the man, he says, Ichihomo, behold the man. I don't know if he knew it or not, but he was preaching a sermon to those people too. It was that innocent man that was condemned for them, the crowd, Behold the man. It was that innocent man that was condemned for the luster, for the adulterer, for the murderer, in their heart and with their hands. And it was him that had nails driven through his hands because he loved the murderer, the adulterer. And it was an innocent lamb right there that was put on the cross for you. And he says it's finished because he says you're free now. You're free from sin. You're free from the guilt, the liability. You're free from the feelings or awareness of the liability. And every time that, you're, that the devil will try to bring you back about that guilt, about looking there or doing that or provoking them to think that, Every time that the devil brings you back there, behold the man that forgave you. He, he made you free. There's a poet named Samuel Crossman. He says uh, he says this in the song: "My song is love unknown." Will you say it with me? With angry shouts, they have my dear Lord done away. A murderer they save. The prince of life they slay, yet willingly he bears the shame, yet willingly he bears the shame that through his name all might be free. Who gets set free? The murderer. In probably the simplest sermon illustration, a was set free and Jesus was put on a cross. And who did they slay? the one who brought dead people to life, the one who showed nothing but grace and forgiveness to everybody that he came across. And how did he do it? According to Samuel Crossman, willingly, willingly, for God so loved, not us shaking our fist at him saying, look at how much we messed up, you have to come down here and do this. No, he took the initiative for you so that all might be free. All people are free. And so when people say, Pastor, is it really true that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Is it true that he's the only way to true spiritual enlightenment? enlightenment? That's a pretty exclusive statement, isn't it? That he's the one way? Well, what are the other ways? Working to try to get right with God. The other way is trying to, to, to balance justice because I feel guilty over here. I'm going to have to make up for it over there like David was, you saw what David was trying to do. These are the other ways, but they're all inventions and then you have to learn the way and then you don't just have to learn the way, but you have to be an expert in the way and carry it out perfectly. But what does Jesus say? He says, you, the murderer, you, the adulterer, you, the sinner, are free. You don't have to do anything. Just believe in me. Um, there's this movie called The Bridge Over Kauai. Has anybody seen that movie before? It's a a pretty famous movie years ago. The young Alec Guinness, before he was Obi-Wan Kenobi, was a captain in a POW camp. He and his men were captured by the Japanese, and uh, they served in this POW camp building a bridge. Uh, Alec Baldwin's character, Alec, I'm sorry, Guinness's character Boy, you can tell who's been in the news a lot. Alec Guinness's character was the one who's this British captain, and he said, "Well, I know how to build a bridge right," and he's going to show the Japanese this British way of building the the bridge because he's the expert of all kind of snobbish, snobbish British thing to say. But he didn't know that the whole time that he's helping them build this bridge, that he's actually betraying his own army and he's betraying his own people because it's built over a strategic spot. He gets to the end of the movie, and at the end of the movie, this bridge is built, and it's complete, and the train's coming to go over this bridge, and what happens in the end, if you've seen it, is the men start getting mowed down, all the POWs after their work is done, and all these Americans are getting shot, and they're in the river below, and as one of uh, Alec Guinness' uh, soldiers falls into the water, the, 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 the soldier says, you, and he points at him. Why? It was like that moment. You are the man. You're the one that created this. You're the one that made this mess. And Al Guinness puts his hands on his head and he says, what have I done? (laughs) And in his last moments of life, as bullets are blazing and going through him, he runs over to the detonator and falls on top of the detonator, giving up his life. That blows up the bridge. He atoned for everything that he did wrong during that movie. In one moment, Jesus Christ did not make the mess, but he's the one that went through the bullets and the mortar. When we said, What have I done? He went through it and he gave his life and fell on the detonator to undo everything, undo the destructiveness, undo all of the the mess that we've made with sin. And so that gives us a freedom. God has truly made you to be something that you completely are not anymore. You're not a sinner anymore. That empowers you to do three things. (laughs) Number one, you're free from sin, so what can you do when the trigger goes off and you know the trigger, what are you going to do to it? You're going to crush it. You can crush it. Why? Because he crushed it on the cross. And you can crush that sin just like that acorn right there and you can only do that when you have Jesus in your life and you know that he's already done it for you. Number two, you can be a Nathan in somebody's life and you can let your wall down and let somebody be a Nathan in your life. Why? because you're free. You don't have to live a double life. And that person that cares for you, loves you and is a good friend. And you love that person just as much because you're a good friend to them. And there's not a condemnation relationship, but it's a truly uh, good relationship where you can hold each each other accountable because you don't want each other to destroy each other's lives. And number three, you can believe. Believe that he is the one that fell on the detonator that he's the one that has completely destroyed sin and never again do you have to be haunted by it. Behold the man. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word today, the story of David, the story of sin, the story of destruction, and the story of how you undid it all. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Now help us to crush sin when we see it in our life. And more than that, to run back to the cross to find that power to crush sin. Be with us in our fights of addiction. Be with us in our fights of uh, failures, of pet sins, and in every kind of sin. Help there, let there be no sin in our life that we're not offended by. And help us also, Lord, to find that friend like Nathan to speak to us in truth and love. Be with us as a community as we reach out to this community with that same hope, that same love. In Jesus' name, amen.